Welcome to the Vox Community Podcast. You can learn more about Vox Community at voxoc.com. Join us on Sunday mornings at El Dorado High School in the Performing Arts Center at 9 and 11 a.m. Nine o'clock, here we go. A little Duran Duran for you. Anybody? Yeah. Remember the video? Okay. Well, a few of us. The Xers in the crowd. Hey, everybody, welcome uh, to Vox. We are so glad that you're here. You're yawning even before I get started, which is always a bad sign. If you're yawning after, I totally understand. Uh, yawning before could be difficult. Uh, my name is Mike Geary. I want to welcome you to our community. If you want to find out more about us, you go to voxoc.com and you sign up for a couple of things. Number one, we have a new to Vox dinner coming up this month. Um, are you taking pictures right now, Bruce? Okay. Um, uh, we have a new to Vox dinner coming up this month over at our house. And then anybody in here, 18 to 26, raise your hands. Okay, look, nope, Lorraine, nope. All right, look at me. This Thursday, my house in Brea, dinner. If you're 18 to 26 or you're close. Uh, Lorraine, you're just outside, just outside. Um, you can go uh, to voxoc.com and sign up. It's called a Table Fellowship. It's at our place, and we'd love to see you if you're 18 to 26. Uh, lastly, uh, we always take questions, and so we've got some questions this morning to look at because we are big fans of doubters and skeptics and the curious. So that's where you text in your questions. Question number one, here we go. I know that the Matrix Trilogy is an allegory for Christianity and Jesus' sacrifice. Now, do some of you even know what this is, the Matrix? Okay, it was like late 90s, early zeros, Keanu Reeves, kind of a really cool sort of vibe. Neo equals Jesus, not really, but you get it. So you, I'm assuming the you here is me, you are in a position of authority in the church, all caps. Have you leapt off the building with true belief? No doubt. Can you see the code? Go, go, keep going. Next slide. Can you see the code and stop? <laughs> Bob, are you, are you all right up there? So this is all, these are all Matrix references, all right? So um, have you jumped off the building with true belief? Do you have no doubt? Can you see the code and stop bullets? I ask because I have faith. I believe in Jesus, but I have doubt. I wrestle with things that don't make sense to me. Then those things give me an anxiety attack. Talk to me about stuff that doesn't make sense and doubt. Thanks. Then, then we get this text from the same person. Me again, Matrix question guy. Update. I sent the text to you guys, then Mike gave a sermon on doubt, five minutes after I sent the text. Seriously? See, so did God predestine that sermon this morning just for me, five minutes after I sent the text? Seriously? I met her that much? There are 300 people in this auditorium. How does it all work? How do you deal with the what ifs? What if I'm seeing what I want to see? Now, this is a conflicted soul. Right? And could it be, could it be, would you be open to the possibility that God indeed loves you that much? Could, I mean, and, and, and yes, of course, of course, of course, it could be coincidence. But here's how I answer the coincidence line. 
I've seen enough of those that it actually takes more faith to believe it's coincidence than it's intentional. So yeah, by itself, if that's the only thing that's ever happened, okay, maybe. Or you start seeing those and you start seeing fingerprints and patterns and you begin to realize, oh, oh, there's, it seems like it's happening more and more. And so I just want to open you up to the possibility that indeed God loves you that much and that your doubting should not be a source of anxiety, but rather is an expression of faith. So I think that was a fantastic train of thought. Next. Why do you think that Jesus tells the 11, even the doubters, to be his ambassadors? The assumption is because he doesn't care that they were doubters. Why this assumption? There are so many other reasons and possibilities. So a reference to last week, there's this statement right before Jesus gives his kind of massive, you know, great commission. It says the 11 assembled on the hillside and they worshiped him, but some doubted. And I was making the point, isn't it interesting that, that it's the doubters that he invites them to be his ambassadors? And the point is, well, didn't he have other reasons to promote these guys to ambassadorship other than the fact that they were doubters? Absolutely. But the text specifically says right before their commission, but some doubted. So it's drawing of all the details you could give, it's drawing attention to the fact that there was still doubt among them, and yet they received the commission anyway. So I was just drawing attention to the, what the text does and highlighting their doubt right before they receive the commission. Now, of course, there are other reasons. They'd been with Jesus and they'd seen him do incredible things. But I just wanted to open up the possibility that you don't have to be perfect before you can be used in the kingdom of God, right? Hallelujah for that, because then none of us have options. Question three. What do you find so compelling about Jesus that you would accept him as God? I feel like we have a, a collection of indirect reasons, none of which seem sufficient on their own. His moral teaching, was it really outstanding relative to his contemporaries, plus or minus a few hundred years? Your personal upbringing, well, that equals bias. The personal belief is of, of his followers, well, it could be exaggerated through years of storytelling. The depth of the Judeo-Christian tradition, circumstantial evidence of the resurrection, the inerrancy of the Bible, please no. Is there any more to that question? So the question is, all right, why do you believe in Jesus? And obviously, I think this is worthy of a whole podcast, right? I don't, I don't think we can handle that one in 30 seconds. Uh, so I love that you're asking the question, what, why do you find, what do you find so compelling about Jesus that you consider him to be God? True, his moral teaching, a lot of his moral teaching is repeated in other Jewish literature. Personal upbringing, sure. I mean, if I were raised in India, I'd probably be Buddhist or Hindu or probably Hindu. The personal belief of his followers, okay. Uh, depth of Judeo-Christian tradition, well, there are traditions that are even older. Uh, circumstantial evidence, I, I, I totally get the question. I, I think it's worth a whole podcast. So we'll probably tackle this one on a podcast. Just wanted to put it up there to show that I love that people in our community are wrestling with these big questions. All right, next all right, so this was texted last week. Hello, future audience, which is you. I have a question for you, future Mike, which is me. If God loves all things unconditionally, regardless of sin, does he also love Satan? Absolutely. He's about as sinful as it gets. 
Does it pain him to see Satan so fallen, or does he cause so much pain to humanity that he considers him an enemy? Sincerely, the texting time traveler. I love that. So let's go back to the future for a second and say absolutely, utterly, unequivocally, God is grieved over every one of the creatures that he has made and fashioned, um, and that if, if, uh, and if you're not familiar who this Satan person is, more than just the church lady kind of thing from SNL, uh, Jesus regarded this person as a real sort of force and entity in the world that resists the work of God in the world. And so does God love this, uh, this being? Absolutely. Would God do anything to see this being redeemed? Absolutely. Um, why? Because that's what God's like. That's just about the character and nature of God. So absolutely God loves uh, this enemy that we war against. Super important question. What's your favorite exotic weapon and or armor? That's from Destiny. Guys, I play Destiny online. And um, yeah. Yeah. Okay, a couple of us. Love it. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because look at you. None of you care. <laughs> All right, next question. Okay, go back. Um, I'm all about the bones of EO, which causes my hunter to jump higher than normal. And um, an exotic weapon, ooh, man, um, uh, black spindle. So there you go. You're welcome. All right, here we go. God is outside of time and experiences everything at once, right? So uh, do you think that in some way Jesus somehow saw simultaneously from a bird's eye view and personally up close what would happen to him, knew people's hearts and thoughts in the midst of it, felt the physical and emotional pain of it all, yet still did it with a more complete knowledge of what he was getting himself into? What do you guys think? He clearly, I mean, he seems to evidence an awareness of what's coming and why it's happening, absolutely. I think that makes the act an even greater demonstration of love. How many of you have seen the movie Arrival? I mean, we do things all the time in the name of love, but when the heartache comes, we're usually caught off guard and sometimes question if it's worth it, not God. Wow. So let's all agree with them. Wow. Exactly. I think that's exactly right. Exactly right. Jesus knew exactly what was entailed and chose it anyway. If you've never seen the movie Arrival, it's a sci-fi film that wrestles with this question. If you knew the heartache that would come with love, would you still love? And it's a really incredibly profound movie in answering that question. I think that's it, my brothers and sisters. Well done. Let's talk. We can go back to the destiny question if you'd like to spend a little more time on that. But instead, instead, today, this is all about sister power. All right, today is, the, today is a day for the sisters. And what I mean by that is, we've got Bonnie who's teaching, and Maddie who's leading worship, and Kaylee who is sharing today. All right, so I'm literally window dressing to get the party started. Bonnie is a dear friend for many, many years. She's taught here before. Uh, we try to get her as often as possible. She's, she's given birth to not only a sermon, but to an infant recently. And so we're excited to have Bonnie here say good morning, Bonnie, and welcome, Hi. Bonnie. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. Um, last time I was here, I was really pregnant. 
and I sat down, so it feels good to be moving. And I think husband and baby are here somewhere. Maybe not. She's probably crying somewhere. So lucky for us, we're not hearing her right now. Uh, but she's a great baby, and she's super easy, as easy as a baby can be. But I was up uh, most of the night, and so we're all tired. But I really hope we can journey together today, and you guys can respond, and we can talk, and we can be here together. Does that sound good? Oh, what a great start. Um, Okay, so where are we going today? We're going to do a little Old Testament background. Then we're going to go into Genesis and sort of apply that background. And then we're going to swing on up to Matthew and apply it to Jesus. Okay, so the first part is in Leviticus. It's going to be maybe a little dry, a little boring, but we're going to explain it. And we have to get it in order to get the metaphors later. And the thing that um, I want us to sort of awaken to today is when we read scripture, there's a literal part that we're reading, right? So there's like a historical fact. So it says like Jesus walked along the lake and we can just know that literally that's what's happening. But the other part to reading scripture is there's a whole bunch of metaphorical and symbolic and spiritual truths that we can apply. So we're going to look at the text today from a literal perspective, but also we're going to kind of stretch ourselves and we're going to look at it from a metaphorical perspective. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Leviticus 1, and this is going to be the background information. It's going to set up everything else we talk about. And Leviticus um, 1 and 2, we're not going to read all of it. We're going to read some of it, but what it is, it's the instructions of what people are supposed to do to bring a burnt offering or a grain offering to, uh, like to God to sort of have a sacrifice for their sins. So what's already happened is the Israelites have come out of Egypt. They've built this tabernacle in the wilderness, and then God's giving them instructions. When a person sins or when the community sins, you need to make a sacrifice so that we can live in right relationship with each other. So Leviticus 1, um, starting in verse 2. Yes, okay. Speak to the Israelites and say to them, when any of you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. So bring in the best animal that you can find, a male that is perfect, no defects. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. So the tabernacle was sort of set up in this way um, where the high priest actually had like clearance, if you will. I've been watching too much scandal. I just said clearance. Um, um, Like clearance to go to all places in the tabernacle. And um, if you weren't a high priest or you didn't hold like an office, you were more like what we would consider a lay person, then you couldn't go to all the different areas of the tabernacle. So this is just giving instructions the high priest is actually the one that carries out the sacrifice. So people would bring the animal and then the high priest would carry out the sacrifice. Verse four, you are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. So the animal was then um, put up there and the people that were needing forgiveness for their sins, they would literally lay their hands on the animal and the idea is that the sin would transfer from them to the animal. Okay, so their sin was going on to the animal, and then when the animal is sacrificed then, then the sins would be forgiven. Verse 5, you are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord, 
And then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting. You are to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priests, are to put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat, on the wood that is burning on the altar. You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, and aroma pleasing to the Lord. So that's where we're going to stop for now, just to get an idea. But what's happening here is just what we said. After the, the animal is taken up, the hands are laid, then the animal is killed, usually by um, cutting its throat, and then... As it says in the text, the animal actually is skinned. Now, there's offerings that take place in the ancient Near East to a myriad of different gods. This wasn't just the Israelites that did this. But what was only common for the Israelites and nobody else is that they actually skinned the animals. Nobody else did that. It was a very unique custom to the Israelites. And actually, the word for skin the animals is the same word in Hebrew that's used to strip of one's clothing. And so we can kind of gather and we can kind of understand through the text that the reason why they did this is because when you strip someone of their clothing or you strip this animal of his or his clothing, his skins, what happens there is that you're basically just naked before God. And the idea of stripping someone's clothing is that you are being discovered. Okay, that like you are bare before God and you're like, this is who I am. This is all my sin laid out there. This is who I am. I'm being discovered by God, my whole true self. And all through scripture, when we talk about being naked, it's often in conjunction with the idea of shame. When someone feels naked or someone's presenting themselves to God and saying, this is who I am. This is my sin. There's an idea of shame there. People are ashamed of that. And then what's interesting about it is that then once the animal was skinned, the skins were actually kept by the high priests. They were given to the high priests as a gift. And then the high priests would do what they wanted. They would keep it. Sometimes they would sell it. But it was given to them as a gift. So not only is it unique that they were, the animals were skinned, but then they did something with those skins. And so as we're reading in the text, we see that the, the actual skins of the animal, that actually is a metaphorical symbol. Okay, it acts as a metaphor for, for shame, but also as a metaphor for redemption. Because when the animal's skinned, they're naked and ashamed before God. But then it's given to the high priest, the person who carries out the sacrifice as a gift, and they get to keep it. Does that make sense? Great. All right. So um, let's keep that in mind, and let's go on over to Genesis 3. We're going to the beginning of the story, Genesis 1 and 2. God spent his time creating. And Adam and Eve, as you know, in the first part of Genesis 3, have eaten from the tree of knowledge. And they have made a mistake, and they are expelled from the garden. Hold on. Three. Okay. So the normal narrative that we hear is this. Adam and Eve, that they've messed up, which they did. They were told not to do it, and they did it anyway. And then there's consequences for their sin, which there are. That's biblical. But usually the story stops there, okay? It's like Adam and Eve screwed up, so there's consequences. They're expelled from the garden, and, like, that sucks, basically. 
And so you sort of like, I don't know about you, but growing up in the church, I sort of got this picture that was, I didn't understand. You have God saying, this is good, this is good, man is good, I love them, this is good, here we are. And then he sort of just leaves them to be. But I want us to pay close attention to verse 321 and what happens immediately after Adam and Eve are naked and ashamed in front of God. The text tells us that. It says that Adam and Eve, they realize they're naked and they feel ashamed in front of God. This is what God does next. It says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and he clothed them. So actually we don't see a God. The story doesn't end there. We don't see a God that Adam and Eve are expelled and then he leaves them there. We see a God that actually sits with them in their shame and takes time and he knits clothes for them so that they don't feel naked and ashamed, so that they aren't separated, that they're actually clothed with dignity. That's what God does. That's the story of Adam and Eve and that's the story of the gospel. But it gets better. Let's be more specific here. The passage says that God uses skins to make Clothes. So let's review. In Leviticus, the order of events are someone sins, okay? And animals come, an animal's brought to the altar, they are skinned, sacrifice is made, the skins are made into something beautiful. So we have sin, sacrifice, beauty, right? When we read that God uses skins to make clothes, and we know that Adam and Eve have sinned, this is tabernacle imagery. This is sacrificial system imagery. This is covenant imagery. Because every time a sacrifice was made and every time they came and did this ritual, the Israelites, it was a sign of the covenant that God had with his people. And we see it here again in Genesis. Adam and Eve sin. They are naked and ashamed before God. A sacrifice is made. They get the skins. And it's a sign of God's promise and covenant with his people. Now, the scripture doesn't tell us what animal is used to make these skins. We don't know. It doesn't say. And when I was researching it, um, one of the things I really like to do is I like to look at different commentaries, but I really love to look at Jewish commentaries to see what is it in the Jewish um, tradition back then, but also today, that people are holding on to. How is it that they are looking at these verses? And then I look at what uh, Christian people are saying about them. And then I look at the text, and it's sort of this dance that I do. And one of the things I found is that there's actually this narrative in in Judaism that says that people believe that the skin that was used to make Adam and Eve's clothing was actually snake skin. We don't know if that's true. It doesn't say. But what a beautiful metaphor is it that the very thing that drew Adam and Eve into sin, God then took that, repurposed it, reclaimed it, redeemed it, and made it into clothes for them, made it into something beautiful. See, when God closes Adam and Eve, it's a message to all mankind. He's saying that he takes our sin and he redeems it. He repurposes it, and he makes it into something that is beautiful and that points to a relationship with him. That's what he does. So the transaction here of the old covenant is sin, sacrifice, and then beauty. So let's turn to Matthew 6.28. 
That's great for Old Testament. That's great for Old Covenant. But what about the new stuff, right? What about Jesus? And I know what you're thinking. You're like, oh, I just heard this at Easter, and Jesus was the sacrifice, and that's where you're going to go, and you're going to tune out. Don't do it. It's not where I'm going. Uh, Matthew 6. Um, and this is a known passage. This is that passage, Lilies of the Field. And the, the usual rendering of it, what usually people are talking about with this passage, is that God is, is literally talking about how uh, the disciples don't need to be worried. They don't need to be worried about their clothes on their back. And so they're actually, they're worried like, what am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? What am I going to wear? And Jesus is saying, don't worry about those things. Okay, as we'll read in this passage, Matthew 6, 28, it says, And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Um, let me make sure. And 29 says, Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. So if that is how God clothes the grasses of the field, which is here today, and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much the more clothe you? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself, and each day has enough trouble of its own. And so traditionally, that's what the passage talks about, is that God is a God that provides. And that if he, there's this um, theological idea of the, great, or the lesser and the greater. If God provides for something like the flowers, the lesser, then he absolutely will provide something of the greater, us, his people. But I want to I wanna look at this and say, okay, what is literally happening here? What's literally happening here is it says that these lilies are clothed in splendor. And then they are cut down. And they are taken to the fire and in the oven, and then out comes a loaf of bread. Because actually, historically, literally, that's what would happen. People would use lilies or um, wild grass, cut them down, and then use them to burn in their ovens as they would make bread. So that's actually and literally what's happening here. But symbolically, what's happening here? I want us to stretch a little bit and look symbolically what's happening here. In Leviticus, when we talked about the burnt offering, the next type of offering that can be offered is actually a grain offering. And they go through the exact same type of spelling out what has to happen. When you do a burnt offering with an animal, you do this. And when you do a grain offering with an animal, you do this. So when we're reading this, this is actually sort of like a grain offering, right? Doesn't it follow the same type of pattern as we read about the first type of offering? Something is brought, it's cut down, it's thrown to the fire and something beautiful comes out. So here we are again. We sort of have this transaction language, right? But it's gotta be different because it's Jesus and he's operating under a new covenant. What he brought was something new. And what's amazing and beautiful is that in the old covenant, this was the order of events for the transaction. Someone sins, a sacrifice is made, and then God makes something beautiful. But we see in this story, the lilies, they start out beautiful, right? It says that they are beautiful, then they're cut down, thrown in the fire, and then something else beautiful comes out. This is actually a physical picture of a spiritual reality that is true in Christ, that is true for all of us. 
and that I think we miss all the time because we sort of stick our heads in Genesis and we are kind of stuck sometimes in our shame, right? We kind of miss the fact that God brings clothes and repurposes and redeems. And so sometimes we miss this. But this is a physical picture of a spiritual reality of how beautiful and amazing Jesus is, how wide his grace is and how big his love is. See, because Romans 5.8, it tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinning, he died for us. That's a different order of events in the transaction, isn't it? The new covenant, the one that Jesus established, is that he died for us while we were still sinning, while we still were in that mode. And so he looks at us and he sees us as beautiful before the sacrifice was ever made. Beauty comes first for Jesus. He's not waiting on us to to offer something and to make this sacrifice to him. And then he says, okay, now I can live in relationship with you. No, no, no. He looks at us from the get-go and says, you are beautiful. You are worth it. And so the order of events here is that God sees us as beautiful. He sacrifices himself on the cross, and then he gives us himself because God makes the lilies beautiful. They're cut down and thrown into the fire, and then out comes a loaf of bread. And John 6.35 reminds us that Jesus is actually the bread of life. Everything points to him. We're forgiven and we're made beautiful while we were still sinners. The beauty comes first. And the thing that we get as the Adam and Eve got the new garments and the high priest, they got the skins, the thing that we get, the thing that we get to put on, the thing that we're clothed in is Jesus himself. It's simply and beautifully that we get the gift of Jesus. That's what happens. That's the new covenant. That's the gospel. For me, this is um, easier said than done. I have lived, a, like I was basically born a Christian, and um, I've lived my whole life in churches and youth groups, and I spent a lot of time in what my therapist would call a legalistic straitjacket. Wasn't that lovely? And, um, and she said it was like a real straight face. Um, and sometimes my husband and I reference that. I'll be doing something, and I'm like, doesn't that seem right? And my husband will be like, straight jacket. You're right. Um, and the thing is, is I sort of have always operated on this idea that sort of like Leviticus, if I do X, Y, and Z, then the outcome will be A, B, C. A plus B equals C here, and if I just do the right things then I will live a life that is good. I will live a life that is fortunate. Bad things will not touch me. Bad things will not happen to me. And all will be well. And all of that really works out until it doesn't, right? Until you actually live life. And then, uh uh-oh, stuff doesn't work out. And so what happened to us is, like, I was living my life like this and sort of trying to catch up on it, you know? Like, I would, like, write in my journal or I would read my Bible more or pray harder or whatever it was that I felt like I needed to do. And then we hit this season of life that I think you've, some of you have heard before where just, like, a lot of bad stuff happened over and over and over again. It was really hard and it was really bad. And I did not make sense of it because, like, I was reading and praying more as the bad things happened and the bad things kept coming and I couldn't catch up and I was trying and I was trying and that's what the old covenant's like can't catch up. 
And so I had two options. Either God isn't real and not present, or I've got this thing wrong. He's not waiting for me to produce things. He's not waiting for me to pray more. He's not waiting for me to do X, Y, and Z so that he can finally bless me. And so when everything fell apart, I sort of started realizing, I think I've been understanding this wrong. I think I've been sitting over here in shame instead of with Jesus over here in beauty. God is a God that sits with us in our shame. He's a God that sits with us in our hurt and in our pain. And when everything fell apart for us, I slowly started to realize that. I slowly started to live in that understanding. The understanding that God wasn't ashamed of me. I was beautiful and I was forgiven. And actually, the very fact that he sees us as so beautiful is what drove him to the cross. He loves us so much that he died for us while we were still, still sinners. We are accepted, we are loved, and we are made beautiful by him. He sees us that way. And so I've started to sort of live in this new freedom. And so I'm not sure what this stirs up in you. And we're going to do some worship here in a minute, but I want to just throw out a few ideas that I think maybe some of us are wrestling with. There are some of us in here that we're just beating ourselves up for things that we've done or dark parts of ourselves that even though we call ourselves Christians, it's really tough for us to accept that Jesus sees us in a way that is beautiful. And so we're trying to, trying to make up for that. We're holding on to really tightly and trying to make up for that. That was me for a long time. And it might be some of you guys. And then there are some of us that have been really hurt by the church because what we've always been told is that there's this God and we're sort of stuffed in the corner and he's ashamed of us and you better do the right things and he forgives us but like still doesn't really like us. Like have you ever heard that phrase when parents are like, I just like love my kid but I don't really like them. That's sort of what I think some of us think of it like, right? Like, God died for us because he died for everyone. But I'm not sure if he really loves me. I'm not sure if he really sees me as beautiful. And some of that's just things that we have internally, and some of it's because of bad theology that we've been told. That's what it was for me. And so I ask that we think about that. We think about the lilies, that they're made beautiful first. And then some of us in the room don't believe in Jesus, and we don't see the need for him in our lives. And the beautiful thing about Jesus is that Jesus is Jesus no matter what you believe about him. And he already sees you as beautiful and already has work to do in you. He's just waiting for us to acknowledge it and to accept it. And I think that's the call for all of us here, is that we have to learn to live out of the truth that we are made beautiful. And it's because of that beauty, because Jesus sees us and he loves us, that he died for us on the cross. And then the gift that we get is a relationship with him. It's simple, and it's beautiful, and it's exactly the way Jesus is, and he's the only person that offers that type of grace and love. We have to learn to live out of that truth. We can't learn to live 
out of shame or what other people have said or out of bad theology or about what authors say, but what does the text say? And it says that we're beautiful. It says that we're loved. It says that Jesus came and flipped that whole system on its head so that we could never do anything to earn it anymore. So let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your amazing and incredible love for us. We thank you for the way that you turn our shame and our sin into something beautiful. The way that you make us so that we can live in a relationship with you. We thank you that you repurpose and you redeem. God, I ask that you would be with us today in this room, that you would um, cover us with your grace that you would come in and you would soften the places that need to be softened. That you would bring healing to the places that are broken. That you would bring hope. And I pray for those of us, Lord Jesus, that we live out of this truth already. I pray that you would equip us to be able to be a good neighbor, be a good friend, and help others along this same journey. It says, Lord Jesus, in scripture, that it is for freedom that you set us free. And that's what we ask for today. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, my name is Andy. I'm the uh, creative director and a pastor here at Vox. And uh, today I have uh, the privilege of uh, hosting um, our story time. And uh, we have a conviction here that the church should be the safest place uh, to talk about anything. So um, week to week, uh, we try to um, coax some people into being courageous enough to get up here and share a bit about themselves. So um, I want to go ahead and bring out our friend Callie here. Kaylee, you know what's so funny? All morning long, I've been saying to myself, I'm going to say Callie. And I'm like, I know that's not your name. Hey, Callie, can you bring me a chair too? Yeah, thanks. Otherwise, I'll just be towering here over you, Kaylee. <laughs> so yeah, here you go. I'm going to hand this over and say hi, and we'll go. Okay. About four years ago, I was in the middle of a depression, and my anxiety was at an all-time high. I had just had my second child. I was constantly worried my mind always racing. Panic attacks, worry, and insomnia were my constant companions. I also had physical health issues and hormonal imbalance that brought on a lot of weakness and fatigue. One particular day, I was reading my Bible, and the thought, you're going to die, came into my head. I couldn't shake my obsessiveness and fear about this thought. I had a nervous breakdown. I really felt deep in my soul that God wanted me to know I was going to die soon. It was so traumatic. I called my good friend's mom, who was a therapist, and I shared my fears and my trauma with her. And she said, Kaylee, you have anxiety disorder, and it's time to go to therapy. It says in scripture that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem, and what that means is that he set his face towards the pain. Kaylee, it's time to face your pain. I wept. Here I was trying to obsess on these fears I had about God, and she was directing me down a path of facing my pain. So I started therapy. We faced my childhood pain, my anxieties, my fears about God. It was excruciatingly painful. 
I tried so hard to fight my way out of depression and imbalance and towards health. I tried meds, I ate perfectly healthy, I stayed in therapy for years, I sat in the sun daily, I saw integrative doctors, you name it and I tried it. I have no problem with discipline and I just couldn't discipline my way out of this and get back to who I used to be. I could no longer. I could no longer read my Bible. I couldn't pray. I couldn't sing or hear worship songs about God. I couldn't hear people talk about God or how he spoke to them without this intense fear taking over. All of it made me feel hunted by God. I couldn't go to church anymore and be this broken and complex around church people. I used to be this Christian girl who journaled, I sang worship songs, I memorized my Bible. I had quiet times, I was involved in youth ministries, all of that was gone now. I couldn't even read my children a children's Bible story without feeling intense doom. I felt like I was a failing wife, a failing mother, and a failing Christian, and there was no comfort. I remember one day fighting extra hard. I was working out on my yoga mat trying to get some endorphins to help the depression. I fought like this every day. I stopped working out and I wept there on my mat. I was so scared and so angry that I had none of these things that made me feel like a Christian. I was so sad for my continued health issues. All I could pray was, Lord, have mercy. As I wept there, feeling robbed of everything, there was this tiny bit of hope that this is the exact place God loves me in. Like all of my strengths were brought to an end and God still deeply loved me, that maybe this was real grace, but it felt like fire to my soul. I really thought that I would never be in church again. I was thankful for the few friends and family members that sat with me through these painful years, and that was more than enough for me, until I heard Mike Geary's podcast on mental health and the way of weakness. That podcast gave me permission and freedom to be weak and be a child of God. My husband and I decided to go to a few Vox launch meetings, and we've been here ever since. I'm filled with gratitude that we are in a space where it's safe to be in process and to belong. And my fears about God are very, very, very slowly being transformed by all the beauty I'm finding in Jesus. Thank you. Thank you so much, David. Uh, we are we're always so proud of of the folks who get up here and um, you know Kaylee's story is not so different than um, I know a lot of us have shared uh, that we've heard from you guys either personally out on the lobby or through emails or feedback or from others who've been up here um, and shared themselves. Um, but yeah, for us, you know, this is this is what it's all about. Um, we're gonna go ahead and have the worship team uh, come back out here and. Uh, you know, this for us. This is this is the center of our service, and um, 
this time we're about to spend is, is why we're here. And it's really because uh, we come in these mornings uh, not just to be expecting that God would do something, but uh, to find opportunities um, in ways that we would actually respond to perhaps what God might, God might be doing. Um, and I would invite you guys to look into this time and be willing um, to be surprised um, by what that might look like. Uh, so we're going to do that in a couple ways. We're going to take communion here. And um, this was such an incredible uh, tradition um, that we participate in with the church because this was this amazing way that rather than God sitting in an ivory tower instructing us about how to become beautiful enough to approach him, he comes down to us and creates a feast and a table because he says, you are beautiful and I want to sit with you and I want to eat with you. And so for many of us, um, again, we'll approach the table and be reminded of how Jesus sees us. And for some of us, it is that invitation to, um, to allow him to speak into how beautiful um, that he really does uh, see us and see you. Um, in addition, uh, we have some prayer shawls that we've hung here on the prayer stations. And there's a couple of things that we could do here at the prayer shawls. Uh, Mike taught on this um, a couple months ago, but that the, the tassels on the prayer shawls um, historically were seen as a way to touch uh, the hem um, to receive healing. And so you could approach those and, and hold those and uh, pray for healing if you should need it. In addition, uh, we've got some paper and some pencil there uh, where you could take some time to write some prayers. Our prayer team during the week um, is praying for you guys, and that's a great way that we can know you and hear from you and uh, be praying for you. Um, in addition, uh, we'll have some folks at the communion stations that uh, would be willing to pray for you as well. Um, and then finally, you're sitting next to some of the most generous people in Orange County, and um, they're supporting us and participating with us uh, financially. And so you could uh, drop something over in these participation boxes that we have um, over here, and then also online at voxoc.com slash participate. Um, and for those of you that are in need of a gluten-free communion option, that's the one right over there. And uh, with that, I'm going to go ahead and hand it back over to Maddie, and um, the table is open. Thank you guys for sharing your Sunday with us. And as always, we want to leave you with the blessing. So if you'll stand, put your hands out. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Vox Community Podcast. You can join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash voxcommunity. Participate in the Vox Community at voxoc.com slash participate.